0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. My name is Patrick, and I am joined, as ever, by my co-host Will. Hi, Pat. you alright? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm really good because we are, I think, diving into probably our most complicated episode we've uh, ever done. Like, yeah, it's, this is it's a it's a big harmed. one, I and mean, we've we've set ourselves a, a high uh, a high target. Like, this is just. High target's not the right word. Far target was probably a better one. <laughs> but this, I mean, I, I think we're both drained from uh, the research onto this one because we really pushed ourselves to, uh, to do something neither of us are have had any experience with really. Which I is... think yeah,
1: I feel like we were quite. Uh, both ambitious and arrogant to think that we could literally look at a globe spin it and just put our (laughs) finger down on each city and go yeah we'll do that one and think oh yeah there'll be everything written in english about this place and actually (laughs) it's just not the case yeah
0: that doesn't quite work out that way you know you really think if you're researching history oh there'll be like endless amounts of uh historians and papers and history books And YouTube videos that can explain every part of the world, every (laughs) event. And they just really aren't for for stuff that isn't very westernised. Um, yeah. And that, that's kind of been the case this week. And so if you didn't listen to last week's episode, the reason we've struggled with um, uh, the research for this week is because we are looking at the city of Baghdad, which is a fascinating uh, city to look into. But definitely not something that we really know that much about, except for the really modern stuff, which is such yeah. a big shame because I think both of us have found like... An amazing history of this place it is extraordinary and it's just a travesty that we don't know more about it through our education.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, s- uh, buckle up, guys, because this is uh, going to take you on quite the journey. If you've, uh, uh, I'm guessing the things that you know about Baghdad, as you say, Patrick, are sort of based in the 21st century and maybe from the 1980s for our slightly older listeners. But like, yeah, it's not a, not a time period, a uh, place in the world which is taught that much at all, in fact,
0: in our space. No, no, not at all. And I think there is there's a not known history of this place, an unknown history of this place, which I think is just so fascinating and such a shame that it gets overshadowed by all the modern stuff, which is just, yeah. you know, it's just big nations around the world just distri- like being awful to other smaller nations. Whereas it's Baghdad has like an amazing start and some really interesting times uh, throughout its history. And that is what we're looking at today. So, yeah, buckle up. Let's do it. It's kind of a weird way (laughs) to put it for a podcast. I mean, I suppose you could buckle in, but yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, we are looking at Baghdad, which is not actually that ancient of a city, really, um, compared to, you know, a lot of the other cities around that area this kind of ancient mesopotamian middle eastern area there's this is where the most ancient cities really existed uh, whereas baghdad actually is fairly recent to be honest it mm-hmm. was founded during a time which is known by historians as the islamic golden age which is a period of cultural economic and scientific like flourishing uh, during like the history of Islam and it's about between the 8th and 14th century and we're looking at uh, the 8th so it's right at the kind of the beginning um, in the 8th century and so
1: while yeah no I was just, sorry I was just <laughs> gonna say it's quite interesting that the 8th of the 14th century is kind of like the Islamic renaissance right and then yeah. y- here we go historians yes. start doing the 14th onwards in Europe is the renaissance so it swings from the Arabian Islamic renaissance as soon as that ends, the European one comes out. It's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a kind of weird thing that yeah, the two halves. Well, <laughs> very. I, this is a very focused idea of the world, but the two halves of the world, which is kind of stupid with China doing its own uh, thing. But yeah. these two like huge swaths of uh, the world, kind of just flip flop between you know these huge golden ages of like new wage thinking and really like amazing scientific developments and stuff to kind of what. Some people would consider Dark Ages. I know you hate the term Dark Ages, but okay. <laughs> compared to the Golden Age that Islam is going through, Europe was kind of in a dark age. Like then, they're, they're nowhere <laughs> near where Islam is at this point. Islam is just so flourishing, and what's interesting is actually at this time, Islam is isn't just a religion; it is an empire. That's kind of what Islam became, rather oh, than really. Yeah, that's kind of like the way you can put it. It's not, that's not the best way to put it. But the the caliphates, which are essentially empires, were the embodiment of Islam and they were kind of descendants from Muhammad. And so it was kind of, rather than like Christianity, which was kind of a religion that started to permeate another empire, i.e. the Roman Empire, and then spread throughout Europe, Islam kind of became its own empire and its own community. I suppose it's kind of like, Judaism, which is its own community, you know, you're, you're it's, it's more of a like a, uh, it's, it's almost like a race. It's your, you're a, it's like you're a citizen of of your this. identity. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just a spiritual belief. It's like where you're from and who you are. It's, you know, you are uh, a Muslim, and therefore you are from one of these caliphates throughout history. And they, it kind of just is an empire, which I think is, it's an interesting, interesting way to think about yeah. it. Yeah, and mm. actually probably has a lot to do with how. I mean, we're not going to get into modern day politics, but I imagine it's, you know, these kind of things is why so many places in the Middle East nowadays want to bring back the idea of this caliphate, because it was when Islam was its own empire, as opposed to just a spiritual belief through people in lots of different regions.
1: Sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: Back to Baghdad. Baghdad was uh, founded by the Abbasid Caliphate um, under the reign of the second Abbasid Caliph which is their, essentially their king slash emperor, a man named Al-Mansur in 762, or to use the Islamic calendar, uh, 144 AH, which I think is an ah. important thing to say because we are in Islam. Is that from the birth of Muhammad? No, so it is from the... Hijri year, which is essentially... It's quite interesting. So instead of picking either Muhammad's birth or death, which I wonder whether they didn't want to be too similar to, say, Christianity or other religions, they chose the date or the year that Muhammad and his followers migrated from Mecca to Medina, which is and then established the kind of first uh, Muslim community. So it's kind of like the beginning of the religion as opposed to the birth or death, which is kind of a nice way of looking at it as opposed to focusing on this one person which yeah. is what christianity does and just focuses kind of on jesus's birth they focus on the beginning of the community which is actually quite nice and is and is a nice it's kind of a complicated uh system to kind of put onto the gregorian calendar because their years are slightly shorter so they don't oh. fit perfectly um, but I did that work out. There's a, there, there's an equation you can use um, to work out when certain dates of are. Of course, you know dates. the
1: equation. You bloody physicist. You're I mean, always not, a physicist it, at heart. I, mean, I just would never
0: a, have thought to do that. I mean, it's just on the Wikipedia page. It wasn't that hard to find. It's like converting um, Celsius to Fahrenheit. Like they don't fit exactly to each other. But but yeah, so I it's know how 100... to do that? All right. Well, it's you can look it up. <laughs> Um, But al-Mansur, the the caliph of this time, he was hunting around for a new capital of the Abbasid uh, caliphate and he was sailing down the Tigris River and he actually was uh, told about a suitable site from these community of Nestorian monks, which is a Christian sect who had been there long before the Muslims were there. And they recommended this point, like, very much on the riverbed of the Tigris River that was re- it was a really favourable site in terms of its, like, topology. It was right next to a river, all kinds of things. And so when Al-Mansur sailed there, he found the site and he actually found a small Persian village of the name Baghdad. Oh. And he decided to build his capital here. So technically, I could have started this history earlier but i don't think there's much information <laughs> about this original persian village called baghdad so well, that's
1: it's the same thing with every city we've done so far like londinium there was technically a tiny little place before that happened yeah and in alexandria there was what was that place called Kabakis or yeah something
0: like that yeah yeah yeah. there was and a little like, Rico- rakotis
1: rakotis that's it yeah, yeah yeah that might be wrong good memory no i think that's right <laughs> i think it is rakotis
0: well, we're not going to check, so we'll say it's right. Yeah, But yeah, it, I mean, it's, you know, settlements are placed in prime positions. If anyone's played any strategy, strategy video game, you know, you know where you put a settlement and you put the same set, you put settlements in the same place because they're next to rivers, they're next to ports, they have lots of fresh water, they have, you know, useful resources around. It's not surprising that people constantly build cities on top of other settlements.
1: Yeah, no, that's true.
0: Now, what's interesting about this uh, site which Al-Mansur decides to build his city is it's actually just a few miles north of the actually ancient city of Babylon, which I think is a really cool yeah. idea. Is that he? It was very close. I imagine because there are technically still remnants of Babylon around today, although all buried under sand. So I wonder whether Al-Mansur knew anything about... He probably knew about the city and may have known it may have been in this region. But I imagine he
1: didn't know it was exactly where it was, because I'd imagine yeah. he'd want to build on top of it. Well, it would He's depend, this... wouldn't it? Because if it was too pagan for him, he might want to start somewhere uh, sort of fresh, you know? I don't True,
0: know. although what's interesting, and we'll get into it a bit later, but there's a huge part of uh, Islam, and especially the kind of prevailing Islam of this time, they're very accepting of other cultures. Like, not fully but they do have this kind of ethos of benefiting from the wisdom of other cultures so i wouldn't be surprised if he thought building on this ancient and you know famous city babylon to really promote himself and you know seem like this great emperor and caliphate um is something
1: that would be you'd be interested in i don't know much about islam's holy books, but do they have the same story? Because I know they sometimes overlap with stories uh, from the Jewish and Judaism stories like Abraham. Oh, yeah. It's an Abrahamic religion, isn't it? Yes. I think so. I think, yeah. We're not religious experts. We're not. But uh, if they have the same story about the Tower of Babel, Babel is Babylon, and there was a tower there. So it might be a place which is impure in the eyes of God, potentially. Possibly. I don't but know like we're just speculating. interesting then know. yeah interesting that he built so close to it then as well yeah that is true or well, that would be because of the Tigris I'm guessing cuz also yes. Te- yeah, isn't yeah. there um isn't there another city close by um the old tessifon isn't tessifon nearby tessifon yes. is like he, it's I like so, the yeah. persian it's like the old persian capital of like the parthian times i think yeah so, yeah
0: yeah i mean all of this territory is the the territory that was once ruled over by uh, the Persian empire and much of this a lot of the Persian empire has now been completely taken over by uh, muslim uh, caliphates and and people taking taking this land for themselves so it's all built i mean baghdad is built upon a persian village so you know there is this kind of replacing the culture that came before yeah. and so yeah so it's interesting yeah they go for the same places i mean this is such a good place i mean lots of uh, the area around baghdad modern day iraq all this area it's very deserty but this is this area is quite like it's similar to the nile in egypt it's this very um it's the fertile pulp, yeah. valley yeah, yeah yeah the 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 tigris river and then actually not too far away from it is the euphrates river so you've got these two massive rivers that are bringing nutrients and uh, all sorts of goodness to this valley um, mm. that can really help people survive here. this is where you can build a big city because you can get lots of food to support a big city and so the people of babylon knew it and then the people of uh, baghdad knew it so they you know it's it's not surprising it gets built here
1: i love though that um, it was the nestorian christians who showed where the islamic caliph could yeah. build his city i love that sort of combining of religions yeah, That's so I yeah, mean not yeah. you know what I mean, taking taking word from one to the other. Didn't hear yeah, about that yeah, very yeah.
0: often. And interesting that we still know about that because it would seem like I feel like if it was a Christian city, Christian rulers would want to stamp out any suggestion that another religion was the source of knowledge at all. Like they wouldn't want you know, Rome will have no reference to any other religion. I mean, I guess it technically has reference to its old pagan religions, but those try to they try to stamp that out as much as they can. You know, they want everything to be Christian. Yeah. Whereas here, the the legend behind Baghdad includes this little tale about these these Christian monks. Yeah, yeah, which, which is ooh, which is really interesting. So the Caliph picks this point. Al Mansur picks this point for his grand city, and he wants this to be like the most spectacular city anyone's ever seen. And he's really specific about how it needs to be built. He decides that it should be perfectly circular, that the city should be held within this perfectly circular wall. Um, and And because of that, it would go on to be known as the Round City. Really? And it's a really interesting. That's I'll so put a, cool. I'll put an artist's interpretation of it because it keeps popping up in all the articles I see, and it's this amazing um, shot of the city. And so, if you're listening, you can go on our Instagram and you can see it. And it's this really cool. It doesn't seem real. It almost reminds me of maybe like a. Uh, like what you imagine to be ancient and lost Aztec or Mayan civilizations to be, these kind of very perfectly organized uh, ancient cities in a way yeah. that you don't imagine. You know, European cities are kind of these sprawling masses, whereas <laughs> these cities are very regular and, you know, it's, it's a real vision
1: of someone very wealthy who comes up with this idea. But also, I guess it's a testimony to the, um, the Arab um, uh, mathematical mind, because like things like algebra and, and astronomy and things like that... Absolutely. In fact, the,
0: the perfect circle of the city was supposedly a tribute to the teachings of Euclid, who was essentially the father of geometry, this old Greek oh, really? uh, mathematical genius. And so, and that's actually, I'm really glad you brought that up, because that is such an important part of Baghdad, especially at this very early stage during the Islamic Golden Age, is that it was a revered centre of science and scholarly pursuits. And that's kind of, I mean, spoiler bit but that's kind of what I've decided to focus on uh, for my episode of Baghdad. Because as Will has mentioned multiple times, I have a degree in physics. I've always been really <laughs> fascinated by, uh, by science and stuff. And so this was a really cool episode for me because in a way that I didn't know, and I feel like most people who know the history of science. Everything is very westernised. We know about Euclid. We know about Newton. We know about uh, Pythagoras. We know about all these much more western, Greek, Hellenistic, or even further west um, thinkers and mathematical minds. But we don't know that much about all these uh, mathematicians and scientific geniuses from the Islamic world. And there are so many. This is where so much... um, mathematical and scientific understanding comes from is from this time and a lot of it comes from this city yeah so uh Mansur, when he arrived at this uh point that he wanted to build a city he actually walked around at ground level to kind of plan out this great round city and supposedly he dropped uh or he ordered cotton balls soaked in liquid petroleum um to be like kind of dropped in a huge circle and then lit on fire. So it would create an outline of where he wanted his city to be. His city is kind of, what's interesting, he kind of made it more as like a half palace, half uh, place to hold his army. It wasn't really designed to be this huge metropolitan city. It was kind of this kind of regal focal centre for his empire, not necessarily this huge, although it would turn into because it is a perfect place for trade and for travellers to come through all around the world. So it's kind of interesting that he kind of thinks, no, I kind of want it focused on me and my (laughs) army and my rule and Islam as a whole. And actually, it kind of turns into this much more metropolitan,
1: cosmopolitan city. That is really interesting. I mean, I wonder how many people, I mean, how many places can we talk about the actual founder of a city? Like you think of Rome, you've got Romulus and Remus, but I mean, they were raised by wolves and... One called yeah. the other. Yeah. And yeah. Start, oh, right, yeah, that really happened. Kind of thing. Maybe it did happen, but like you can't. it's too far back in history to know. Who knows who put down the first stone of Athens? But you can yeah. literally say that this guy, Al Mansur, was the founder and we kind of understand why as well. So that's kind of yeah. a bit of a blessing by having a later city. I would say later. I mean when was it? Nine hundred did you say was it when was it founded?
0: Seven sixty two. Seven so you two know, two over a thousand two. years years ago. I mean, but we yeah. also know we also know who founded Alexandria. Because he, written, he wrote his name into it, so that's, that's a bit of an and easier one.
1: He also he um, he bridged the the gap between um, the island of Pharos. So actually, we do know that as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, so I think it's. I mean, that that I've got a very good like that as a kind of feeling to this one. It's very quite like Alexandria. This place, you know, it was built okay. to be this amazing place, and it was very much directed by its founder, who was this great leader. Although, was Alexandria moved on to conquest other lands. The caliph remains here and turns baghdad into his capital sure but what's quite interesting as well is because there's there is such an, uh, an adherence to science but at this time and it pains me to admit it but at this time astrology was a very important part of science <laughs> probably more important than actual astronomy um, <laughs> love it love it and the royal astrologers uh were the ones to choose the day that they began construction of the city because they chose to build it under the sign of leo because supposedly leo symbolizes productivity pride and expansion oh, so they you know they want you know they everyone was gunning for this city to be this spectacular city like it's going to be built at the perfect location it's going to be built it's been you know wizened old christian monks have told me have foretold where i'm going to find my <laughs> perfect city my astrologers are going to pick the perfect time to build it it will be perfectly circular it's just you know they're gunning for like
1: a paradise i love that this is the only city that i know of that has its own star sign <laughs> yeah
0: yeah it genuinely and it does happens
1: to be the star sign of my girlfriend as well she's gonna love that <laughs> oh, yeah you could tell her but she'll be well happy
0: <laughs> yeah. i mean it's a shame that it's be it'd be difficult to visit Baghdad. and actually a shame that actually this round city it's a bit spoiler for the rest of it but this round city doesn't exist anymore like it's the, the the ancient part of it has just kind of been lost they're not even really sure exactly where it would be located uh, yeah. there's some maps and they can have a they have a rough idea but modern day baghdad i don't think really has any reference to it at all there's been a lot of destruction in that region um which is really sad but yeah. there's yeah so so we it, it's not it's hard to really visit these sorts of places you know you wouldn't be able to step into the to the round city
1: No, I know. I I found this also when I was at uni, I was studying a lot uh, about Afghanistan, like voluntarily, Mm. and for like my sort of pieces. And I really wanted to go and visit. But in our entire lifetimes, it's always been a place which I can't visit. And it's such a fascinating place. And I can't go. So I, I, I know what you mean.
0: So by the 9th century, uh, Baghdad had become the kind of cultural, commercial and intellectual center of the Islamic world and had actually become, by some historians estimate, the largest city in the world, which is oh, okay. fascinating. So much bigger than uh, any of these more ancient cities. So all the cities in Egypt, even Alexandria at this time, all, those had kind of all started to fade away. Rome had started to fade away, whereas Baghdad was really a focal point for the entire world. And this is kind of it at its zenith. It's these first few hundred years of its existence where it is this beacon uh, to the rest of the world of this kind of freedom of thought and like scientific pursuit and just a really amazing place. And unfortunately, and I'll whiz through a bit of its history now before we move on to our main segment because we've been talking about this for a bit. (laughs) Um, After this, it does kind of have a slow decline over essentially the next thousand years. Between the 10th and 16th centuries, Baghdad is weakened by internal strife from within the caliphate. Uh, The capital of the empire is then moved to Samara and the city suffers multiple invasions from both the Mongols and neighboring Persian kingdoms so it starts to really go downhill from there. In 1534 Baghdad is conquered by the Ottoman Turks um, and the city again kind of falls into a bit of a decline its power and prestige has very much become eclipsed by Constantinople. So which is like Alexandria in, yeah. I guess it's the same yeah yeah. As the yeah, absolutely. You know, the the focal points of these and it's like what we were talking about with um Alexandria and stuff a city is only as important as the as how the the position of the empire around it.
1: Mm. And
0: so the empire during uh, the Abbasid Caliphate's days was focused kind of around Baghdad and they saw that as their capital whereas the Ottoman Turks were shifted more towards Constantinople, which sucks all the power and prestige out of Baghdad. People stopped going there tradesmen stop going there so it kind of loses its appeal and then starts to be on the on the decline
1: okay
0: and so the ottomans rule over it for right up until the 20th century when it is taken over by who else the british unsurprisingly (laughs) yeah and we're actually really kind and benevolent rulers
1: uh, are we? Yeah, no,
0: we're not. <laughs> going to say. Just kidding. We're about. absolutely not. Uh, the British apparently established their control uh, through a systematic suppression of Iraqi, Arab, and Kurdish national aspirations. So, classic Britain right there. Yeah.
1: Didn't we install a king, or have I just made that up?
0: Yeah, so we kind of start the uh, Kingdom of Iraq, uh, which is the first time Iraq becomes its own place, its own
1: citizen, with Baghdad oh, as its capital. Why would that be a good idea? It's like, it's never had the monarchy system. Let's just put <laughs> a monarch in and see what happens. It's like for fuck's sake? Well, it's the very
0: British general idea of, you know, grabbing a map, drawing a few lines with a ruler and going, well, they'll have to get on with it. And that's basically how you could describe a lot of the Middle East. It's just a. it's I mean, there's more parts to it as well, but a lot of it starts with some stupid moustached British general deciding what is right for these people. He knows nothing about, but has a lot of soldiers in their cities.
1: Yeah, I actually yeah. spoke um, in, in the run up to this. I spoke to my grandfather. He was in the RAF in the 50s. And he actually um, there used to be an RAF base there called Habanir. And Habanir is now mm. one of the major military bases by Baghdad. And he was there just before the 1958 or 19 no yeah 1958 uh revolution where they basically knocked off that monarchy and wow. then started he was literally there like six months before they actually raided it because the iraqis wanted full control and Jeez. so yeah it's not a good Bloody hell yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: yeah so it 20th century is quite rough for baghdad in iraq to be honest and it gets Worse, I mean, like I said, we're not diving into it, but we move into Gulf War, the Iraq Civil War, and then, of course, the 2003 invasion of Iraq by coalition forces, which included Mm. us, the States, Australia and Poland, and things aren't great. From there. And it's yeah. and it's not quite recovered from that. It still had a huge amount of like severe uh, infrastructure damage that it's still getting over. But it is still a huge city. It's the second largest city of the Arab world and the fourth largest city in the Middle East with a population of about 8.1 million. So it has still remained a huge yeah. city and a very important place. But it has gone through a lot of wars and invasions and damage. And so, what was once this perfect round city that was the like the apple of a caliph's eye has diminished somewhat since then. So, sure. which is which is very
1: yeah. sad. Let's go back to the good times, though. Tell yes. us about the yes. uh, the golden age.
0: So, yeah. So, my walkthrough and my episode is we are jumping back to the the golden age, uh, the kind of ninth century Baghdad when it really was at its zenith, where it was kind of this amazing city largest city in the world kind of huge cosmopolitan melting pot of all these different civilizations because it's right in the middle between you know east and west right on the river so lots of people can travel there from it the islamic empire the abbasid caliphate uh spanned quite far and so it was really pulling in people from you know proper far east from china and from india and then europeans would be traveling there so it really was this kind of uh epicenter of the world epicenter yeah this beacon mm. in the desert which is a kind of cool way to look beacon at beacon
1: in the desert that round yeah, yeah. beacon very nice <laughs>
0: yeah so for our walkthrough we will be walking through the city of baghdad with a free-thinking scholar by the name of muhammad ibn musa al-qaizmi and so this is the guy we're going to focus on uh, and i'm just going to call him al-qaizmi because that's much easier to say than his full name. So Al-Qaizmi was born to a Persian family in a region called Khwarazm, which today would be somewhere uh, along the border between Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. And that's kind of the region, which was part of the Islamic empire at this time. However, Al-Qaizmi would have traveled thousands of miles to get to Baghdad, because he was what is known nowadays, and actually through most of the time, as a polymath, which essentially means he's an individual whose knowledge spans loads of different subjects and disciplines. And he was like this kind of genius in mathematics, astronomy and geography. And there were lots of people of this time. You know, Aristotle is called a polymath. Lots of people, ancient these kind of ancient philosophers and scientists and academics are kind of these polymaths who kind of knew everything. Yeah, I mean, I guess weird. you could... I guess you could argue it was easier back then that, you know, if you try to be a polymath <laughs> nowadays, every subject is just so complicated. I mean, if you had to learn quantum physics and biology and philosophy and all this stuff and medicine, you know, you couldn't I mean, do all They of must it.
1: exist. There must be polymaths, but we don't revere them like people who no. were polymaths in the past. No, um, no, no, no.
0: I think yeah. in this case, they were solving problems with their understanding of all these different disciplines. Whereas nowadays, because every discipline has has gone so far, you need someone who is solely focused on, say, theoretical physics yeah. or, you know, surgery you or specialize. research. It's just yeah, probably, you have to specialize in order to improve the discipline. Whereas back then, a broader understanding was kind of useful in order to come up with these really novel ideas.
1: Yeah.
0: And so for a man like al Baghdad would be like a paradise because it is this beacon of intellectual pursuits across the world. So as we follow Alcoismi, through the city he probably arrived possibly atop a camel uh, adorned in quite rich clothes as befits a man uh, as such a revered scholar as he was and at first he would pass through the kind of outer city so you do have the round city but you have these four gates and these long straight roads that come out equidistant from the main city and along those roads and on the outer edge of the city rises this kind of like extra city all around all all the way around the outside. If you know what I mean, you know, the interior of the round city is the really regal, rich place. But all around it, you have this other city springing up around. And all of that would have been surrounded by the kind of lush palm groves that grow along the side of the Tigris. So it's this really kind of amazing place uh, wow. in the middle of this desert. And this is kind of where he would pass through first, you know, looking at various wares from the different markets and bazaars. Cheaper and a bit more, you know, rough and tumble than what's inside the city proper but still really would have been fascinating and probably really interesting for him because uh, he's travelled from so far. This would yeah. be kind of where you'd start seeing
1: some really exotic goods being brought in from all over the world. And I guess also, it's, it's as you say, because it's the epicentre of the, of the known world at the time, it must have felt like you were coming to a place of real relevance, whereas yeah. all those thousands of miles that he travelled to get to, to Baghdad not that I've got anything against those places. I just imagine in a pre-industrial world, Absolutely, people yeah. wouldn't leave villages. It wasn't developed. So you'd literally just be going through wasteland. or Not wasteland, but just lots no. and lots of large spaces with no He may
0: have passed through a few other cities as well. But yeah, Baghdad would have been something else even compared to other cities. And a huge difference from the villages and farmland that he would have traveled through for the months or so before he reached Baghdad. Hmm. So um, he would eventually reach the Round City itself, Um, and at this time, uh, we're looking at about 8.13, the Round City was partially uh, ruined at this time. There had been uh, kind of a war of succession a few years previously, where the city had been besieged, and so some of the architecture had been a bit damaged, but overall the city is still in good nick, and it is this kind of spectacular vista of Islamic architecture, which I'm... If you've seen lots of these cities and these ancient cities, you have a good idea in your head what it would look like. But you know, it's these amazing buildings of large stone bricks or even marble, tall uh, minaret towers coming from these great mosques. The amazing kind of like onion-shaped domes at the top of them, and some like really amazing ornate patterns and geometric shapes carved into the stone themselves. Like the wow. the, the architecture at this time is kind of extraordinary. And if you've ever been to, I know, I think the closest I've Well, maybe not the closest, but I've been to uh, Granada in Spain, which has a real kind of like Islamic architecture all the Moors. Yeah, the Alhambra. It's a lot like that. And, you know, it's a real show of wealth at this time. And Baghdad was a very wealthy city. I mean, it is the seat of the of the caliph himself. It sits in a desert, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, it's along a river, so it's technically uh, surrounded by kind of lush palm groves and stuff like that. But all around it is a desert. So where do they get all the stone?
1: I mean, it must have taken... Where are the nearest mountains? I don't know my geography well enough, but surely it would have taken... So Just thinking about that, you've got a round city, which is made of thick stone walls. You've got marble. You've got, you know, huge stone buildings. But, you know, to get all that, just to be able to like have that sort of power to manipulate that amount of stuff to the middle of a desert to make a city is insane. Well,
0: you've got the river, though. So you can, and if the river uh, will, as yeah. rivers do, they normally start up in mountains and stuff. So I imagine that's what really like fed the building of this city is that they can transfer all this building material. And you know, Western civilizations and stuff, it's much more wood and timber. They didn't really have that that much. Wood was kind of a rare commodity. So everything is built out of stone. You also want it built out of stone to keep out the heat because obviously Baghdad is an incredibly hot place. I was looking at yeah. some uh, some. Uh, like weather reports earlier it can get in like the middle of uh summer it gets like average days are about 44 celsius holy shit you're which kidding. is just Forty yeah more. like that yeah that, that i mean that's just awful that's ridiculous okay. I, yeah, yeah, it yeah it doesn't yeah. melt <laughs> couldn't be do it couldn't be dealing with that but you know these people are used to it so you build you know thick stone walls to keep in the cool air and thin windows so you don't have this burning heat coming into it sure Um, What's quite interesting is actually the cost to enter the city was relatively low. What I've kind of got from the city is that it's kind of maybe a kind of liberal-leaning city. So the cost to entry was low, so most people could have got into the city without much uh, difficulty. The standard of public hygiene in the city was also far higher than, say, any European city at that time, or even probably European cities like centuries years after that. I mean you <laughs> yeah. know I don't think many places were this good but they would have you know lots of public baths and uh, lots of fountains as well to keep people clean they had things called hammams which is this kind of islamic steam house which is kind of built uh, and it's kind of like inherited off uh, roman model designs for bath houses and it's a very important part of lots of islamic culture and oh, right. they said so they had this all the time The streets themselves were clean as well because they would be regularly washed and cleared of debris which i think is a very remarkable they had lots of these kind of basic services uh in the city to keep it a a nice city they had and they had loads of civil servants as well kind of making sure the city ran properly so they had night watchmen lamplighters health inspectors market inspectors to make sure that you know the market (laughs) trades were going properly Uh, and debt collectors obviously as well to make sure everyone's paying their debt they even had a police force and the police chief i mean police is probably an odd word to use here but an equivalent police force to make sure everyone is in line and the police chief actually lived within the caliph's palace so they had a real respect for like the rule of law and the wellness of their citizens which is something that actually lots of the western world doesn't have so it is really this kind of interesting modern city with all these different services to keep the people happy which is a really nice thing it's kind of gone back to what i've talked about well i think we've talked about in a previous episode where what's really important or can be really beneficial for the citizens of a city or of a region is where the value of the place is held within the citizens themselves and not in some commodity that exists there so if you live yeah. in a place which and this it's an unusual thing because it this is what Baghdad in Iraq would become but if you live in a place with a kind of resource like gold or oil or something like that where the state makes their money off that commodity they don't need to worry about the wellness uh, or the happiness of their citizens because they make their money elsewhere whereas here in Baghdad at this time a huge amount of the money and the value of the city came from its citizens, from these scholars that would travel hundreds of miles like al khwarizmi coming all this way to the city. This is where they made their money. And so it needed to be this kind of perfect place where people could stay and relax and not fear to be robbed, not fear to die of
1: disease, you know, live in this kind of paradise. That is fascinating. I, I, I mean, I've never really thought of like, why a city, where the city gets a, its value from, but I get that's absolutely such a real thing. Yeah. So following still
0: with al He would be moving down one of the one of these four main streets that were kind of like the arteries of the city. um, That would be kind of uh, parallel, not parallel, perpendicular to each other. And then either side of these of these streets would be a huge row of vaulted arcades where there'd be markets and bazaars and all sorts of amazing things flowing through this city. And this is where you'd find some really exotic, amazing stuff being sold from all across the world, from China to Europe probably africa as well because a lot of the islamic empire took up a lot of north africa as well Mm. and in between these bazaars would be these smaller streets that ran off into the rest of the city where there would be squares and houses and parks and gardens and promenades it really was this kind of well-built well-designed city that was meant to really benefit the populace and be this lovely place to live
1: sounds amazing
0: it does. It, I mean, everything I, I, mean, I read about it, it does sound a bit like a paradise. And I'm sure, you know, all of these histories will be written on orders of the Caliph. And, you know, they, it was designed to be a perfect city. Of course, they talk about it to be a perfect city. And, of course, it would still have loads of problems. But I think compared to a lot of other cities at this time, it had good irrigation. It had good sewage. You know, you know, it, because it was so next to the river, it got uh, fresh water from both sides of it, from the north and south. So every house
1: was supplied by... Uh, fresh water, it just had a lot going for it. We, I do feel like we talk about how, oh, we'd love to go and visit this place or that place, but it sounds like of all the places we've talked about so far, Baghdad in this period is the only time where we'd have, you know, the same similar standards of sort of hygiene and sort of yeah. infrastructure. Yeah. That would be the place to go, really. Yeah. Similar of levels of hygiene,
0: probably not similar, quite, but certainly yeah. a lot closer than most places in the world. I mean, I did Victorian London last week uh, and nowhere near this quality. But yeah, and compared to Victorian London, this place probably was a bit of a paradise, even though the advancements in every regard were lesser at this time. You know, hundreds, nearly a thousand years before Victorian London still would have been cleaner and you could probably could have lasted longer.
1: Yeah, fair play. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what's another interesting aspect of the city and kind of one of the biggest breakthroughs that firmly planted Baghdad as a kind of center of learning throughout the world actually came out of a seemingly banal event. In 751, the uh, Abbasid Caliphate was uh, at war with China and in the aftermath of the Battle of Talas 751, the Abbasid Caliphate captured a number of Chinese prisoners of war, which seems fairly standard, that normally happens in most wars. Sure. But yeah. what was really beneficial is that these Chinese prisoners of wars knew the secrets of how to make paper. And that meant they could make paper, they could make books out of paper rather than making them out of vellum or papyrus or parchment. And so with this development of the paper, Baghdad became a centre of translations. And this was what a huge ah. part of their kind of academic learning came from, is the idea that you should these amazing documents throughout the world, all this huge amounts of work from ancient Greek culture and Chinese culture, bring them to Baghdad and get them translated into Arabic so all the citizens of Baghdad and all the citizens of the Abbasid Caliphate can read them and understand and educate themselves from these foreign works of science or mathematics or medicine or anything really. And that's what Baghdad really, that was kind of its peak is that it became this amazing city for translations and this kind of wave of, it's like a uh, I can't remember I
1: had a name for it. I can't it's like, it, I don't a, it's like it. A, a magnet for all of the world's knowledge. It sort of sucks everything in. That's really interesting. Like the idea that, that wait, so they got that from Chinese POWs?
0: Yeah. The, the yeah. how
1: to make paper. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not and
0: 100% it, sure exactly why paper was so much better than papyrus or It's vellum. probably
1: easier to make. Easier to make, probably a bit sturdier, a it, doesn't, more of it.
0: it doesn't tear apart easily, maybe easier, like slightly thinner, so it can be put into much bigger books. So, mm. yeah, I assume there's a variety of reasons, but it meant that they had this huge booming trade in translations. Not even a trade, the caliphs uh, were just really fascinated by bringing in, or really intrigued to bring in all this culture and
1: works of science and probably fiction and art to their city to be translated to benefit their city. So would people bring it to Baghdad, they'd translate it there and then take it away again? Or would they send people out to these cities, translate them in places and bring it back? No,
0: so I think they would bring the the documents back to uh, Baghdad in order to be translated and then kept within Baghdad. So Baghdad became this repository of translated texts that scholars throughout the empire could travel to and learn from all these amazing minds throughout history so they got Aristotle wow. they got all these huge giants of history that they would have heard about but maybe only you know through word of mouth been told about what they did and now they could travel to a place where they could read the exact things that these great philosophers and thinkers wrote thousands of years ago in a language they can understand and they translated it from all sorts of places so that there was there was works from uh, greece they had chinese works they had sanskrit works they had persian works and then even syriac works which was syria yeah and so it's all these places and all the education and all the learnings they'd taken from all these different places through the thousands of years previously were
1: kind of brought to this central hub of baghdad what's so amazing about that though is the fact that they are they don't seem to have many scruples about thinking that other people other than themselves have found great knowledge. So, you know, yeah, just absolutely. because they're outside of the caliphate, it doesn't mean that they are, I mean, they, they won't be, um, in their eyes, maybe pure enough to get into heaven. But they mm. still, they understand that, they recognize that intelligence and faith no, don't necessarily come together. In, yeah. In that, it's just fascinating that. That's well, really Well, what's,
0: cool. what's interesting is that it's, it's kind of almost the reverse, because the reason they have this kind of idea of understanding from other cultures is it's kind of written into the quran there is, is it? So, but yeah there's supposedly parts of it that um that place a huge amount of value on education and scientific discovery regardless of the information's origin so it's okay. built into the religion itself and therefore built into the empire itself this kind of understanding that the idea of educating yourself is a really it's almost like a holy task it's something that everyone should do to improve their lives which is absolutely not something you get from christianity throughout most of the you know lots of the history we know about christianity and the church they are squashers of free thought and new ideas and stuff whereas really interesting islam has kind of the opposite and that's kind of what dry in baghdad and the caliphs to pull all this knowledge from around the world to this place to really learn because even if you compare it to uh, Alexandria and I mean if you haven't already got it there is a huge parallel between Baghdad and Alexandria between the library of Alexandria uh, and and the the libraries within Baghdad and that's kind of and it's interesting to think that Alexandria was this kind of meeting it didn't really have a strong religion when it started it had a bit of Roman gods a bit of Greek gods you know it, it wasn't really driven it was just driven by scholarly pursuit. Whereas sure. in Baghdad, part of the central tenets of the religion—maybe not central tenets—that's tenets, probably extreme—but part of the religion is understanding other cultures and gaining wisdom from, from the, them. the wisdom of others, which is very foreign from our, you know, Christian upbringing of understanding of the church. Because Absolutely, it's, it's just very different, and it's—it's—it's it it it's, it's, it's fascinating. So it's not surprising that Islam is going through a golden age at this point because they are just so open to learning about the world in a way that is unusual to us. Sure. So Al-Quizmi, as he moves through the city, he is actually heading for the heart of the city because right at the center of the round city is this closed off area that would have been, uh, would have had trees and lovely open like parks and gardens because it was where the caliph lived in his palace. He actually had the what was called the Golden Gate Palace and the Great Mosque, right next to each other in this center of the city, which is a very common thing for uh, Islamic cities, you know, this kind of union of the like secular head of state and then the religious center as well. They both, really? these were, you know, and, and it kind of adds to the idea, that, you know, Islam was an empire, not a religion at this point. I mean, it is a religion as well, but it's so integral to them. They build their entire society around. Uh, their religion, which is not given the the religions like tolerance for new ideas and pursuit of education, seem to be a great idea. To be honest, yeah, it, that seems that being, like a logical fit,
1: doesn't it? Yeah, yeah,
0: because actually, if you think about it, education and like you know, an educated masses tends to be the enemy of tyrants. I'm sure yeah. that's a phrase in 1984 or something. <laughs> an educated, yeah, it sounds like it. But yeah, so it's it's a nice thing that the religion, which is more important than any dictator or tyrant or caliph. Uh, the overriding idea is we should be educated. So maybe that is kind of why it, it's so prevalent. But yeah, al-Qurizmi is heading towards the centre because he is going towards what is known as the House of Wisdom. So yeah, so that is actually what my focus for this episode is kind of going to be on, uh, the House of Wisdom. And what's interesting is the House of Wisdom is a term that's used a lot at this time. Uh, it's actually in in uh, there in there the sort of Arabic, it's called Bayat al-Hikmah. It's probably the better way to put it, but I'll keep with House of Wisdom because it's, it's easier <laughs> to it say. Cool. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is that it's kind of unsure exactly what it was. So either it was the uh palace, the kind of royal uh, palace library um, within it, and then the caliph set it up and then many scholars would go there. Or it's just kind of an academy or the kind of the, the general idea of the city was the House of Wisdom. So... Whatever it was, it was a collection, a community of scholars from across the empire coming here to read transcribed uh, works from all over the world, to discuss new ideas, to explore, you know, the the boundaries of science and push them forward. And so that's kind of what the House of Wisdom is. Not, I don't think it's quite clear exactly if it was a building and you could point it and say that was the House of Wisdom. Hard to say, because it's kind of this general, like... It's almost like a university.
1: A university yeah. isn't one building. It's an institution that kind of exists across a city or across That's anything, the thing. You know? I think, because I've done a little bit for my episode next week, uh, I've done a little bit of looking into the House of Wisdom, and I, I agree. I They never quite established whether it was just one building or not. But the thing is, because it was around for so many years, mm. so many centuries, it probably was a building at one point. Then it might have turned into a few buildings as the repository got bigger. And then, you know what I mean, it would have gone further from that. I I
0: imagine it would have at least included the palace library. And so whether the palace library could considered the house of wisdom or whether that was just one part of it or maybe that was where it started and it kind of grew out hard to say I think it, you could say very similar things to the library of Alexandria which is a very easy comparison to make that too had a library but then a second library and then after some damage kind of got spread out a bit so it, it kind of becomes more of an institution as opposed to a physical building yeah. which makes sense actually because you would have different disciplines uh, and different people coming from all different parts of the, parts of the world so So you would, it wouldn't be able to just fit within one building. It would kind of spread out, and the central round city of Baghdad kind of became this institution, which I think is really—it's kind of amazing because it kind of like a—it really is a sort of first university. Um, And there's kind of university-type things at this time as well, but it really is this kind of very early university. Supposedly, the universities that got set up in Baghdad were the first to give out degrees, which is interesting. That's interesting. Small factor read, which I thought was kind of a, an interesting idea. I wonder what everyone else did. Probably just said, "Yeah, yeah. sure, you did it.
1: You did it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you got,
0: or it would get you a foot in the door to become the a secretary for some king or lord or something. That's that's what they did, or become a lawyer or a, or a judge. I don't know what people did back in the day. Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) So I think what's cool to look at is some of the amazing people that lived at this time. And again, I'm probably going to butcher a few of the names or get stuck on them for half an hour to try and read them out properly. Um, But that's kind of uh, where you can really see the amazing advancements they were making at this time. So one of the most famous Baghdad translators was a man named Hunayn ibn Ishaq, which is probably right. Yeah, sounds legit. (laughs) sounds legit (laughs) um and he spent many years traveling around the world in search for greek manuscripts in particular and actually he was the one who transcribed the work of galen who is this kind of legendary uh surgeon and philosopher from uh, a greek guy but from the roman empire uh you know during roman empire times um and he was kind of like considered one of the most accomplished uh medical researchers of all time or av- of antiquity which basically means of history yeah um, and he would be into also he was you know he was knew a huge amount about loads of different disciplines within medicine so including like anatomy physiology uh neurology and a bunch of others and actually what's really interesting is that not only did he, uh this translator bring all these teachings to baghdad and to his fellow colleagues these writings are actually how we know most, like how we've got knowledge of Galen's work at all. So all the Greek versions have kind of vanished uh, or been destroyed. Whereas, and that's kind of another huge boon for us nowadays from this period of Baghdad's history is the fact that a lot of these translations are how we know about this work at because all because
1: the original copies have,
0: have been burnt up or lost have been yeah have been learned yeah oh. have been destroyed whereas these the, this kind of huge booming trade of translations into Arabic meant that we've kept these copies for thousands of years which is so amazing and Holy brilliant shit. for us
1: That's so cool
0: and it's such a great, I, I love that idea. So not only were these uh, scholars of Baghdad coming up with their own ideas, which I'll get to in a second, but they were saving the works of these other cultures, which, like we just said, or we said earlier, is something that's not a big thing in so many places of the world. No, they not just had this They just had this appreciation and this respect for knowledge regardless of its origin,
1: which I yeah. love. And I, think I, I, I also love the idea that a Greek philosopher like Galen, sorry, surgeon like Galen, is obviously in the Western culture, the Western sphere, it gets given it gets translated in into Arabic or whatever they're writing in, and then mm-hmm. it gets trans given back again to the West. Because I know Galen was used in the Middle Ages um by lots and lots of doctors who used Galen for their yeah. for their like groundwork studies, like before they started to open up bodies and things. They'd rely on yeah. Galen's yeah. work.
0: Because Galen would open up, uh, I think, monkeys and pigs because it was, yeah, he wasn't allowed to open up um, uh, people. So I imagine people like, you know, Renaissance uh, era, kind of Leonardo da Vinci, would have based a lot of his work on Galen's work. And I wonder what copies they were using.
1: That's what I'm wondering. That's the thing. Yeah. Maybe they were looking at translations of the translations from Baghdad.
0: Well, I mean, it's an interesting thing. And I'm sure if there are smart historians listening, this is either something that. Uh, is true and people know full away about it, or I'm complete completely wrong in this. But if so much of the West's like knowledge is actually recorded and survives through Middle Eastern places like Baghdad. That's very interesting, like geographically, the fact that it's Italy and places like Venice, which is the kind of doorway into the Middle East and the East. This is where loads of these ideas start up again in the West. I wonder whether it's because they had access to all this stuff that was originally from the
1: West, but was saved in the East and then comes back to the West. Okay, you've just triggered something (laughs) from my masters. I really have to say otherwise anyone who knows me by that time will kick me. Whilst yes, Baghdad was the centre for translations. The monasteries of the Catholic or of the Roman Catholicism were doing exactly the same thing, but not for Ah, the same reasons. What they did Mm. was they had all these Roman texts, so Plutarch, for instance, and uh, no, not not Plutarch, um, Tacitus, and sort of Cicero, all of those kind of things. And what they would do is they'd um, teach their sort of apprentices or like novice monks how to write by making them do translation co- not translations copies so they did the recopy again and again and again so if they had anything that looked like it was a bit dog-eared and wouldn't survive another 100 years they'd get they'd get it redone within the monastery so actually a, a fair amount of the uh, the ancient stuff does survive in monasteries in Christendom um as oh, okay. well as coming in from the east so but it's like less of a, a pure
0: appreciation of knowledge oh, yeah. and of learning yeah, and you know absolutely. It's, it's more just to it's more it is kind of more kept to themselves.
1: Which and they wouldn't even have taken much from it. They were there they were there to literally keep it alive because they were like, Well, this is better than anything we've got but it's made by pagans, so we're just gonna yeah. copy yeah. it again and again and again but not use it.
0: Yeah, I mean. absolutely. Anyway, that's a small caveat. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um So uh, some other members of the House of Wisdom that are of note are there are three brothers known uh, as the Banu Musa brothers, who apparently are apparently very colourful characters in the House of Wisdom. Um, The eldest uh, uh, man named Muhammad is said to have been the first person to suggest that celestial bodies such as like the moon and the planets were subject to the same laws of physics as what we experience on Earth which Ah. I know might seem kind of obvious now, but was a huge new idea. They really thought the stars and the heavens were just an entire another world that worked completely differently. And this guy was like, no, it's probably the same there. Like you would assume, I mean, a lot of science nowadays is assuming that what we experience at the moment is normal. We don't yeah. assume that we're special in any way. We assume the rest of the universe is like this. And that is kind of the first idea of this. It's assuming that the heavens act very similarly, very similarly to how physics works down here, interesting. which I think is, that is, which is that really is interesting. That
1: is big. Yeah,
0: he even um, apparently wrote a book that was called "The Astral Motion and the Force of Attractions," which, if you've done physics, that might the force of attractions might ring a bell actually, because this is a kind of crude and very early kind of grasping at the ideas that eventually Newton would come up with with gravity.
1: So oh, and this see. is
0: what 900 years before Newton That's and yet they are starting to come up with an idea of gravity. They basically kind of start describing a force, but they don't describe it perfectly and they're not entirely sure. It's kind of vaguely understood that there is something that holds us all down and they don't really work it out properly, but this is 900 years before Newton. That is and, mad. You know, Newton gets all the credit and I mean he was a very intelligent man. Didn't he also... also
1: steal it from a Frenchman? Yeah, yeah, he did. He was yeah. an awful person <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one, one day I'll do a, I'll do an episode on Newton because he was just an awful guy. Didn't he kill someone as well? Anyway, let's not go down that route yeah, yeah.
0: He may have killed someone
1: Yeah, got away with it That might be slander, but
0: I don't care um, <laughs> But yeah, so this is, you know, there's ideas of gravity being uh, formed in like the ninth century, which is hundreds of years before anyone came close to coming up with these ideas uh, the the other brothers were also quite known for uh, their inventions and, uh, like, advancements in engineering. They supposedly had a book called The Book of Ingenious Devices, uh, or the Kitab al-Hiyal, um, which uh, was published in 850. And apparently it had, like, hundreds of these illustrated little puzzles or strange instruments and devices that were, like... Really weird and advanced, and kind of novel, as opposed to being really like huge leaps forwards in like bridge building or anything useful. Okay. (laughs) So they had these kind of weird things.
1: They were like quiz masters.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was kind of well, it was all these kind of like really weird toys, essentially. So they actually supposedly created uh, the first, what's considered the first programmable machine, because they made a automatic, or what some could be considered a robotic flute player. Essentially, it was like a system where hot steam was constantly flowing, I guess, and then they would place in certain uh, tubes and devices that would then play a tune as it goes through it. So rather than someone controlling different valves and stuff to play a tune, it would automatically play a tune by various holes and stuff like that. Right. That's cool. It's not... It's not. I couldn't find too much of a description of it, so that might be wildly wrong. But that's my in my head. I think that's how it would work. But it's such a weird and cool idea to think we don't have to be involved in making music. We could just create something that makes music on its own. And
1: what I think is incredible it. about that is if he if they'd made that in in the same time in Christendom or even a bit later, um, it would be seen as the work of the devil. I'm really surprised that they were able to. Not get away with that, but that they lived in such a liberal place, yeah, where yeah. they allowed that because that would have been that would not have gone down well with the Inquisition. <laughs> no, no, not until you know but what I found what... out. Like <laughs> it ridiculously, one of the guys who came back with um, Christopher Columbus, I forget his name, he was on the Nina when he came yeah. back from the New World. Um, he had brought, brought tobacco back with him, and he was addicted to it, so he was smoking it, and that was the first recorded person to smoke in Europe. Because what happened was he started smoking it in his his local town of Jerez in Spain, and the locals saw him and went, "Oh shit, that does not look right. Like, why is he breathing out like that does, smoke?" That
0: It would look terrifying, yeah. So because you know, it's they, like he's got fire within him.
1: So what do they do? They went and uh, told the Spanish Inquisition, and out, out <laughs> they came, and and they locked him up for seven years for um, making him. He thought they were that he was a demon. By the time he came wow. out of out of prison. Then, then smoking was completely normal, and they were like, "Why were you even in there in the <laughs> first place?" So, yeah, and that was 1492 or 1493, and we're talking about 800 and steam steam flutes are being made in other parts of the world. It's just madness. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah. like it's just the the difference between uh, like Middle Eastern ideas of what's right and good and what should be promoted, and then our Western Europe or just most of Europe's understanding based off the church. It's just so different, and. <laughs> no. Really, sad. I mean, it's a. I mean, I'm surprised we ever had a uh, renaissance. Like, it's lucky we got that. Like, I think it was a good chance we would have just stayed in the dark ages. And I don't know you hate that term, but stayed in the dark ages for hundreds of years and would have just been led by the Islamic world. And it's it's remarkable that we live in a world which the Middle East and stuff is in such dire straits, whereas Western Europe is thriving and is at the top of things. Given this head start they had. I mean, they well, were light years ahead of us at this time. But, but then it switches. Yeah, but it's, it's just so amazing. It's peaks and troughs. Yeah, trough because, yeah, I like, guess that.
1: There have been big times where Europe's been on top before, and obviously China's always been in a... Well, yeah, different parts of the world different, move at different um, wavelengths sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so another giant of uh, Baghdad and of the House of Wisdom is, in fact, our old friend, uh, Al-Khwazim. Mm. Didn't Al-Khwarizmi um who is a very important person uh oh. in the history of mathematics so he was actually one of the or well, he was instrumental in introducing the arabs to the hindu decimal system and kind of involved in the first of bringing so you know how the numbers we use are actually arabic symbols yeah yeah, so a big yeah. part of that is the kind of bringing of uh, Hindu decimals into this Arabic uh, alphabet and so that's the kind of progression and then they started using this as a series of numbers to start working out mathematical problems and stuff really? and it would eventually lead to us using Arabic symbols every day which is kind of a cool thing i love I, it's a fun thing to tell people when you know we do use Arabic symbols every day because of numbers yeah and but, so,
1: because otherwise we'd be using roman numerals i suppose yeah
0: which would be a ball ache because they're yeah. rubbish compared yeah. to <laughs> i mean they i mean they, i mean you know i'm still saying it now i'm, I'm taking a, a stance roman roman numerals suck like they're so dark there's so much more effort to write they're really hard to understand yeah yeah uh, i mean they arabic... are
1: technically older than uh i'm guessing than arabic numbers
0: yeah yeah they
1: will be but um so they, but they, they, they suck they don't even
0: yeah. ze- they'd have a zero I know. Which was a I huge know. thing. I mean, that was, I, I'm fairly sure that's a Middle Eastern uh, Islamic world invention, the ter- like the value of zero, which really? is a huge, I don't think it's related to Baghdad. I mean, it might be, I may have missed that, but it's a huge idea to think of zero. No- nothing.
1: Yeah, just as a concept. Yeah. yeah. And as
0: a mathematical number, it's just, it. it, it's, it it's weird, these things that are like uh, are a big deal back then. Yeah. Um, however, uh, another huge uh, idea of uh, Al-Qaizmi um, that kind of really pushed mathematics forward a lot is that he uh, wrote an extraordinary book um, which was called the Kitab uh, al um, which kind of explained how uh, you can use different rules and replace certain numbers um, to fo- solve really complicated mathematical equations and this is where we get algebra from
1: no way. Because
0: Kitab Algebra is, if you take oh, the, I algebra. know, Al, oh. yeah. So that is I where that comes gonna from. Because I was going to say,
1: I'm sure that anything beginning Al uh, is an Arab. It means it's yeah. come from the Arab world somewhere. So Algebra is by the same guy. that you, you walk through? Yeah, Very it's nice. actually supposed to be down
0: Algebra because it's, it's two separate al-gebra. words. But yeah. Ah. Yeah. And, and so we yeah, Algebra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Algebra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But yeah. So. Any of you who had to suffer through maths classes, I always quite enjoyed it, but uh, any of you (laughs) you you (laughs) who suffered through maths classes uh, learning algebra, replacing, you know, doing maths where every part of a maths equation is a letter as opposed to a number, you have uh, Al Wow! to thank. Al al Quizmi to thank, yeah. So blame him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean,
1: I literally was teaching earlier uh, algebra to one of my students, so. Yeah, So maybe you can tell them that. I'm sure that will make it so much easier for them to learn.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that will make it a lot more interesting. (laughs) for poor poor Um, students. And then uh, just finally to touch on, because it wasn't just kind of mathematics uh, and historical document translations and stuff that Baghdad was focused on. Um, The caliph at the time um, that we're looking at, a man named al-Mumum, Um, He was very focused on astronomy and astrology, unfortunately, but they both go hand in hand. (laughs) And he set up in this kind of extraordinary state act of like state funded scientific pursuit. He set up what is kind of considered the first astronomical observatory where they Ah. could start. I think it's the first astronomical observatory or it's the first astronomical observatory in the Islamic world wasn't quite clear exactly how how that worked um and it's also a bit hard to understand exactly what an observatory at this time is because they don't have telescopes yet
1: no but of course
0: essentially i think the way i would understand it being is that it would be uh a, like a in that kind of idea that we had as the house of wisdom as being an institution it would almost be like a department that would be a building <laughs> where all these scholars would gather and write down recordings of movements of the stars and the moon and the sun. I thought you were going to say it's
1: just a lot of men sort of squinting for hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, it would have been kind of that
0: because they used some really interesting tools. So they would have used, like, sundials and stuff like that to to measure the time. Well, no, measure measure the day and measure the time and stuff like that. But this was also a time where uh, they were using what was called an astrolabe, which is this really amazing device. I think it's Greek in origin, but it's this, like, small handheld disc that had lots of uh, moving and rotating disks within it that that you could hang up so that gravity would hold it down you align part of it towards either a star or the sun or the moon and then move another part to it to match up to where it was, and it would tell you about the positions of other stars, or you could work backwards and know a position of a star and work out where it's going to be. And using this, they can do all sorts of amazing things. They can track the movements of the stars. They can work out to a really high degree where each city across the Islamic Empire is located compared to each other because you can work out longitude and latitude. They also were able to work out to a pretty high degree the circumference of the Earth, so obviously, because we've amazing. always known that, we've always known that the Earth is a globe, despite what some people nowadays will say. Yeah, but And course. these guys were <laughs> able to really figure out the circumference and do some amazing uh, like mathematical and astronomical calculations to figure out these amazing parts of the world and it's just it's just extraordinary what they could do with really limited technology at this time i mean
1: the i mean the astrolabe was an a phenomenal advancement i have but... a feeling that the astrolabe was actually an arabic uh, invention in granada think... yeah i think in my own research oh. i found the astrolabe was a that came up in something.
0: Like that. I saw it as something as Greek, but possibly it was based off something else that was Greek. I mean, these things will tend to be copied and repeated. I mean, I've seen one. I, wa- I watched a video of someone um, showing them. And if you should, I'd love, I, mean, I don't know where I'd ever see one, but they're amazing little things. They're like really ornate compasses or like yeah. half compass, half sextant kind of things. They're extraordinary. And they also are like, they have lots of information about astrology stuff they have the zodiac and all that stuff because that's all very important and very scientific at that time just not nowadays
1: yeah (laughs) um
0: but it's really amazing because the the investment that the caliph would have to put into this observatory is huge and would probably for the the amount of money they had back then would rival like the large hadron collider today you know it's these huge state-funded scientific research which you don't see really anywhere else in the world. At all. I think at, yeah. at this time you wouldn't see it at all. Even in the even in the past, you would they would places like Alexandria or Athens and stuff. They would you know help fund scholars to sit around and think, but they weren't building these huge institutions and actual devices to help uh, progress science in a way. It's kind of these guys who really start it, and it is it, it's amazing what they yeah. what they accomplish with that.
1: That's really cool. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, so that's uh, that, that, that's kind of my story. Not really a story, more just, um, uh, honestly, this kind of came out. I was, was reaching Baghdad. I was reading more and more about um, the amazing science stuff they'd learned. And I kind of just wanted to share it with you guys because <laughs> I like science. And I think you could probably tell I've, yeah, I mean, I've spoken a lot on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about um, science. Like, yeah, I yeah. I've got
1: managed to I'm, finally bleed science into a history podcast. Good effort. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, though, I can't do it without bleeding astrology into it as well. No. To my deepest you gotta, shame. You've
1: got to bring it with you.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I actually read about it. There was a, there was a Guardian article um, by Jim Al-Khalili, who uh, I think said he's he grew up in Baghdad, I think the article I read. Um, and so he talks about it and is just, you know, uh, so saddened by the fact that we know so little. We know so much about Einstein and Newton and Galileo and Aristotle, but we don't know about these extraordinary uh, figures in the Islamic uh, history. Yeah even though they progressed science so forward. It might be because their names are really hard to say and I almost don't want to go back to them. I
1: mean, I should say them again because I'm complaining about it. But no, but this is kind of one of the reasons is because you uh, no matter how well educated you are, um, you're only going to be educated as much as uh, within the perspective from the perspective of the place where you were born. I still think that's the case even today. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: absolutely. Like, it's
0: just, it, it you have such, a like, blinders to the rest of the world. And, I mean, it's kind of what we wanted to do with this podcast, is kind of expand out. But, yeah, so if anyone listening is uh, also a bit of a science nerd like me, and you too have spent most of your uh, scientific education learning about Newton and Galilee and stuff, there are so many other uh, scientists out there who really push the, the, the boat forward for all of us and deserve so much more respect than I think they get. Just because the the places they're from nowadays aren't as prominent, but it you know it should be meaningless because they did amazing things in history and without them we wouldn't be anywhere where we are now. so i'm I, I'm glad I could stand on our, our little platform here and shout about them for for an hour <laughs> just to to highlight how, how important they are and nice. yeah, I hope I hope you, I hope, you, I hope you haven't been too much annoyed. Uh, about me rambling on no. about physics and history. I and don't mind. Astronomy. I mean, I, I, it was
1: definitely an education for me. I haven't looked at science stuff since uh, my GCSEs, and I've been very thankful as a result. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Well, I've, I've wrapped science up in history, so you have to like it. Yeah. I saw that that, that sandwich. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So, that is our first episode on Baghdad. I hope you liked it. If you're not the biggest fan of uh, science, hopefully you got some cool stuff about the the origins of this ancient... Not ancient. I keep saying ancient. This origins of medieval city. um, (laughs) Because it is... I mean, it's an amazing city. And it would have been amazing to see uh, what it was like back then when the round city was intact. It was this kind of beacon of civilization. But, unfortunately the the wheel of time moves on and we don't get to see that so
1: well i found it fascinating thank you so much for telling us about that um for my uh episode next week we'll be looking obviously at baghdad again but this will be a story from one of the more low points of its history um Patrick's sort of taken it from its absolute zenith, and I'm going to be the one who shits all over it. But it's fine. It's fine. There's a bit of a redemption in there, and uh, I'll be focused on the terrible time when the city was besieged by none other than the Mongol hordes of the Uh, Yeah, We've not Uh, done the Mongols, I think, at any point in our series,
0: which is surprising because they're so important for so many years and so much of the world.
1: It's true. So tune in next week. um, And if you're listening, please uh, subscribe and leave a review. Tell some friends. And please do follow us on our Instagram as well. And we'll see you next week. Absolutely. See you next week.